It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? It's your job as a board to really think about is this a material risk? Can I measure materiality? Can I tell that to my shareholders? If this is a risk, then I'm also legally obliged to fix that risk over time, right? This is why we want this. We want a certain amount of open intelligence. We want ratings out there so people can make the judgments for themselves. Hello and welcome to Danny and the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Are you staying cool? A shout out to all of our listeners in Britain and continental Europe who've been in the grip of this just completely gnarly heat wave from afar. It looks awful. I mean, when runways are melting and bridges are being wrapped in foil like a baked potato, I mean, that's... uh, my goodness, those are very visceral things. But all joking aside, um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of that viscerality of climate change's arrival, of how important it is to spurring more investors, more founders, more action in this world of climate tech. And I can't tell you how many people out here have said that they quit their job or shifted their focus kind of definitively to climate tech after... There was this one very bad fire season a couple years ago, which culminated in what is known now as kind of the orange day, where it looked like nuclear winter all day. No one could leave their home because the air quality was so bad from all the wildfire smoke. And it was this really surreal experience that kind of imprinted on a lot of people and, and really motivated them to kind of jump into into a new field. Anyway, that is all a very big lead up for this week's guest. Guests, plural, I should say. Iggy Bassi is the founder of Servest, uh, which is a startup that is effectively trying to create a climate risk scoring system for virtually every asset on the planet using some very clever machine learning and AI models and just a trove of climate data. Um, And then try to sell that to companies and governments so that they understand which of their vital stuff is most likely to get walloped by that next once in a century happening that now appear to be happening kind of every year, you know, like it being 100 degrees consecutive days in London. Also on the show is Karen Chopra. He is the service COO um, who helps us kind of get into the nitty gritty of all of this. And just so you know, we did this interview a couple weeks ago before the heat wave, but obviously thought this was the week to run it given the circumstances because, you know, what we talked about has, much of it has so dramatically manifested itself in this past week. And Iggy and Karen um, just have really super interesting histories as well. They, They came to this whole AI climate modeling business by way of rice in Africa. You heard that right. So they first started working together trying to build a giant rice plantation in Ghana, which they did successfully, but they were just regularly hammered by these crazy weather events that everybody said, you know, like, oh, that's, you know, that's not going to happen or this rarely happens. I haven't seen this in decades, et cetera, et cetera. And so it kind of occurred to them that maybe there is a business here in trying to get better, get more granular, get smarter about what climate risk looks like, hence Servest, which is based in 
London. So we talked about that whole journey, uh, you know, what Servest is up to today, how it got started, and the challenge even today of getting companies and governments to buy into this idea that we need to cut emissions, of course, but that we also need to get much more aggressive and smarter about adaptation to a world where extreme weather is just a reality. So I hope you guys enjoy this one, and I think by the time this airs, the temperatures will have cooled, so have a nice tall glass of ice water. And enjoy the conversation with Karen Chopra and Iggy Bassey of Servest. Here they are. So you guys are kind of calling in from opposite corners of the world. So if you could just briefly introduce yourself and then we can talk about what Servest is and what you guys are up to and what is happening in this, in the world right now, which is, um, well, there's lots of things happening in the world right now, but we, <laughs> we won't cover all of it. We'll cover uh, just some bits. But yeah, if you could just first introduce yourselves, that'd be great. Super. Yeah, this is Iggy Bassi. I'm the founder and CEO of Sylvester and dialing in from London today. Pleased to meet you and thank you very much for having us on your show. Yes. And this is Karan Chopra, the COO at Servest, uh, calling from uh, the Bay Area, California. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you guys for both being here. Um, basic question, what is Servest? What are you guys doing? <laughs> if I was to nail it down, we are something called a climate intelligence company. And what that really means is it allows you to make better, let's think about it as sort of business intelligence for your assets. So you can make better decisions on your assets relative to um, climate change, physical risk, carbon risk, transition risk over time. I think we all, we, we all agree that we need a better view of climate risk and climate intelligence over our assets. And that's essentially what we do using a combination of science, machine learning, physics models, so we can give you the best possible answer to take care of your assets. Well, so that's really interesting, right? Because I think a couple weeks ago, we had a company called Persephone on the program and they were saying that which i hadn't kind of fully twigged was that i think it's like 92 percent of the s p 500 have said we're going net zero guys don't worry just cool <laughs> and then you're like um okay how do you measure that what's the enforcement what does that even mean so when you talk about climate intelligence what does that look like actually practically speaking if you are i don't know a big real estate developer in California, for example, I mean, and you said, okay, we're going net zero, you know, because it does feel like we're kind of there's been a lot, a lot of talk about the need for urgency and all these big changes happening, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's like, well, what is actually happening here? Yeah, so happy to take that. Um, so there's net zero and then there's physical risk. So just because yeah. you're going to net zero and you make that statement, so it'll be net zero by 2030 or 2040. Uh, does not mean that you've actually moved away from the risk. So physical risks are locked into the system and they're locked in for decades to come. Mm. Yes, we can affect what happens uh, multiple decades out, but really the volatility, right? So the blows that are coming, whether those are heat waves, drought, flood, the combinations of them, wildfire, those blows are going to come more frequently. They're going to come more intensely. And that is the regime that we are living in from a climate standpoint, and that is what we are going to be living in. So, yes, you can say your net zero goal, and that is very important to do. Net zero is essential. Yeah. Let's not get that wrong. Um, but ultimately, to protect whether it's your real estate asset, whether it's your school, your hospital, your home, your factory, your warehouse, you have to be aware and take decisions to adapt those assets as well for essentially these blows that I mentioned that are coming here, right? So you don't need to so think about net zero, but really thinking about also the physical adaptation of the asset to essentially weatherproof them and future-proof them for, uh, for the world we're living in. Right. So Iggy, can you talk about why you founded the company and what actually climate intelligence is? As, as Karan is saying, you know, have you have these kind of, we are where we are, kind of, you know, my house is where my house is. I'm in the East Bay. We're probably you know, knock on all the wood out of the path of a likely um, wildfire. But for example, wildfires or sea level rise, these kind of things, um, they're kind of baked in, if you will. But so what is it, what got you to start Servest? What was the original idea? And what what is the actually, you know, what is the tool or tools you guys have built? 
Sure. So let me go way back. Let me go way back to West Africa. So actually, Karen and I, uh, with the third founder, we actually started a business which is looking at integrated agriculture, food and agriculture. So we've been doing some work in the um, impact space. There was a great opportunity for us to come together, collaborate and build an integrated food and agricultural business and apply lots of principles of sustainability to that farming business. So sorry, just in West Africa, what were you guys, what were you doing in West Africa? Or where and where were you? Ghana, uh, first and foremost. And I had actually done a piece of research for a large foundation, which I decided to commercialize. Um, basically use the power of the market, integrate that with social capital and figure out whether we can make a difference to people's lives, but also to the climate as well. Hmm. Karen was actually born in West Africa. He was born in Ghana. So oh, wow. um, okay. he was a local and uh, some friends, we had some common friends at McKinsey. Uh, we connected. I think our first phone call lasted six or seven hours. We had, there was so much alignment, so we decided to co-found this thing together. Now, it was that business building a very complicated, integrated rice food production business, everything from seed to food products and food processing. So you guys were actually growing and marketing and selling food grains in West Africa. From green fields to white plates, <laughs> we did the whole we did the whole integrated chain. Right in a place, presume, and I haven't been to Ghana. I've been to a bunch of places in Africa, but not Ghana. But I'm presumably in a place that has very little infrastructure and irrigation and things like this. But loads of natural capital, right? right? So I think that the comparative advantage that we had was excellent water, excellent land, excellent soils. Um, they just didn't have the right technologies, the right genetics, the right uh, market processes. So we were actually there, guests of the country, working with the local communities and saying, actually, we think we can help you improve food security, market mm. security, um, through bringing new technologies to the table. And those technologies did double and treble yields for the local farmers and obviously also for us as well. But actually... You're right about the infrastructure. The first couple of years, we thought we were an infrastructure company. <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was tough. It was extremely tough. We had lots of help from donors. Um, international agencies helped us. But actually, every now and then, we saw surprises. There were shocks to the system. We saw a month's worth of rainfall falling in three or four hours. A month and three or four hours. That's, it, it's that ridiculous. sounds very we, crazy. It, very crazy and very hard to manage um, because that that part of Ghana was actually pretty flat. So we said, okay, listen, there's got to be better intelligence that we're not getting. So, of course, we started looking at all the weather systems, the climate models, and there was no signal to tell us these things would actually happen with any kind of predictive power. So, And there was so coarse grain, it didn't really mean anything to say, well, well, the average temperature in this part of Africa is going to rise half a degree in the next three decades. What am I supposed to do with that information on the farm? Right, 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 right. So there was a massive disconnect. Yeah, I will also share, um, we had a, a brand new processing facility. So this is a rice mill um, that we had set up. And, uh, and right after we had set that up, the whole thing was on the floor because there had been a major storm overnight which oh was a goodness. one in 20 year event that happened and so you're looking at millions of dollars of capital that was just destroyed that was just destroyed overnight and we had to start from scratch um oh, and wow. again this was an event where you're saying okay you know in fact in 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 ghana many people call that an act of god and we were saying okay but where's the science to actually yeah, tell yeah, us yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. what uh what has happened what is happening what is likely to happen so we can take better decisions whether that is to locate that there or not locate that there. We could I have see. located somewhere else. There are adaptation right. measures we could have taken in terms of the design of that uh, of that facility or I the see. protection that we could have put around it, right? So there are all these decisions literally costing millions of dollars and 18 months to set it up Oof. from Greenfield to scratch, um, all down the drain overnight, right? Um, so Quite literally down the drain. Quite literally. Um, wow. Um, and Karan, you you say you were born in you were born in Ghana. Born in India, grew up in Ghana. So I, I uh, uh, was uh, when I was a year old. It was when I was in Ghana. So really, the first kind of seventeen of the first eighteen years of my life were in Ghana. Um, oh wow! And then we went back to build this business. Um, 
Wow. So a lot of it is I could also see the effect that this was having in the country that I grew up, right? So it's not just on our farm, but Iggy mentioned the farmers, right? Um, and mm. different rain patterns and what that means then for food supply, what that means for food prices, right? In Accra um, or in Kumasi or in Takradi in the main cities, but what it also meant for their incomes, right? So, you know, 70% of the poor are smallholder farmers, 40% of the population is farming. Yeah. And you see these climatic events then affecting real incomes and real livelihoods, right? So there is the the economic consequences, but there really is also the social consequences of right. uh, of what this means. Um, uh, you know, real livelihoods, real things um, getting disrupted in the country, and the impact that that has. And so, when when were you guys doing this business? What years were that roughly? Started about two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, and then by two thousand and fifteen, we had sold the business. Who'd you uh, who'd you sell it to? We sold it to an ex um, Syngenta. Um, distribution companies. So they were in a, a number of crops in West Africa, um, quite a few of the major crops. They were also part of the distribution chain, um, but they never cracked the code on rice. So they were very right. keen to acquire this fairly large asset. Um, and also it just gave them a domestic market, everything from seed replication all the way through to product. We're also integrating hundreds and hundreds of different um, farmers. So it was a ready-made product ready to go. Brachi, then we took some time to figure out, okay, so what worked in that business? What didn't work? And how do we get better on this, what we call, you know, this climate risk issue, like right. all the shocks, everything we saw over the five years, everything that went wrong was broadly, broadly, I would say, really related to extreme weather events or climatic tail events that we, we just couldn't pick up. So mm. we were very, very interested in how do we get more predictive power? How do we use the world's physics models, atmospheric models, climate models, but right down to an asset level. So I can tell other farmers, future farmers, what's going to happen over what time frame? what should you do, how should you think about it, and how can you start adapting to what will be a more volatile world? Right. But then we also spoke to our former clients. So we're both ex sort of management consultants. Uh, we had quite a few clients that we could talk to and get, well, where are they in their climate journey? Mm. Right. What are they seeing? And these are companies across the food, uh, fashion, capital market, insurance market. And I think there was a common pattern. We care generally about climate, but specifically, we don't know what's going to happen to our assets. So we have no right. way of telling what's going to happen. So and that really sparked a question in me, like, how do I bring together some of the best mathematicians, ML experts, climate physicists to come together and say, how do we translate that complexity at the high level of world science right down to an asset level so we can tell individuals, this is your personalized risk. Because once you can personalize that risk to an individual asset, your incentives change. Right. right. So, so we were very keen to understand. And the first couple of years was largely research, right? just to be very clear. We were taking lots of um, agricultural data sets, time series data, and trying to look mm. for a signal in the data. And we would really focus on crop forecasting. So actually, the genesis came out of Ghana into crop forecasting first, right. uh, machine learning led crop crop forecasting. But so we had lots of help. Uh, we had lots of partnerships with some large companies who gave us a huge amount of training data, uh, which is like the essential thing that you need to kind of train these models. But in 2017-18, um, I actually realized that this is not just a food and agricultural problem. This is an every sector problem. So how do we generalize what we've built into more generalizable machine learning that can be applied into cities, built environments, Right. So I actually asked one of my scientists at the time, I said, hey, everything you've done in food and ag, now that we're outperforming the public um, indexes, can you go away and tell me how you're going to map the whole world? Right? So Dr. Ben thought I was probably pretty crazy, but um, he came back in a few weeks. I actually think this is possible. I think we can mm. generalize all the training algorithms we have and start looking at, at the build environment. So for the next for two years after that, we started building a platform which looked at the built environment. And there's different components to that platform. There's all the climate data, the scientific data, the peer review data that we brought into the platform. At the same time, we brought a huge amount of asset data. So we're not going to wait for people to be enlightened. Oh, I need to do something on climate yeah. for my assets. Let's not wait for that. Let's bring all the assets into a common digital platform. So we can apply this and we can start understanding, you know, sort of business to business, person to person, peer to peer, asset level climate risk. And that's the complexity of what it has been building for the last three or four years. Right. 
And so now you have this whole, this kind of whole world view, right? So is the idea that if I was in, so like I said, I'm in Oakland, if I can go up to, you know, two miles up the road into the hills where they're in the nineties, when I was growing up, there was a huge wildfire that just like raised a whole section of the Oakland Hills and just destroyed a bunch of homes and businesses. And now if you move there, your fire insurance is bananas. It's crazy. It's very expensive. And it's kind of this whole layer of kind of risk that you take on moving there, for example. So that's all known. So what is your, what is service doing that is the kind of layers on top of that? Or is it just more granular in terms of what the kind of the predictive capabilities? Yeah, I would say it is, uh, it's more granular it's more quantified and it is broader in scope. And I'll go through each of those in terms of what, what they mean. So uh, for an individual building, whether that is a home or whether that's a factory or a warehouse, you can look at risks across different categories. So not just fire, but flood, different types of flooding, coastal, riverine, um, heat stress, drought. And then importantly, what does the what does the combined risk look like? Because actually, we're living in a physical system mm. where these things are not disconnected from one another. So extreme heat and drought are a precursor to wildfire. Yeah. Um, and we're living in these complex physical systems with all of these relationships. And so how do you actually capture that? Because just because you've looked at the fire map does not mean that that asset is safe or it's risky at some dimension. Yeah. So there's a granularity to it, but there's also a granularity to then the actual physical metrics. So for example, for heat stress, you can look at things like the number of heat wave days that you should expect, um, the max temperature that you should expect. So you can start making decisions, decisions such as HVAC units, how many for uh, for a mm. given facility, how many HVAC units you might need because actually the industrial side heat stress affects labor productivity and machine productivity yeah. um, around things or for your home, for example, around that. So there's the granularity of that, but there's also the quantification of that. So showing you then the value at risk. So that's where you're not just looking at the exposure, which is from heat stress or flooding or things like yeah. that. But okay, based on some characteristics of the asset, what is the asset made of in terms of building codes? How many floors does it have? Does it have a basement or not have a basement? How do we then start putting dollars and cents next to it? So what would this mean in terms of, for example, replacement cost? depending on you know future predictions of what's going to happen here. So it's the quantification of that. But importantly, then it's also the ability to compare this to any other asset right mm. now in the US and Europe and soon global. So if you're a company, say, uh, you know, you mentioned the S&P 500 when we started, if you're one of yeah. those companies, you've got assets all over the, the world, um, not just your own assets, but you've got supply chain assets that you depend on. You've got, you've got things in your network. And how do you then say, okay, this distribution center I have in Fresno versus this manufacturing facility I have outside of London versus this warehouse that I have somewhere in Germany, how do I actually start prioritizing which assets do I need to take care of when, um, in which way? So this allows a standard quantified view, a rated view on that risk that you can then benchmark across and you can then start saying, okay, here are decisions that I can make. This is what I need to prioritize to do now. Here's what I can do two years from now. Here's what I should maybe think about doing five years from now. It feels to me like the challenge for your business or any business like yours is like effectively what you're asking companies to do is to pay for more stuff earlier. <laughs> and to the point around, you know, the net zero pledges is like, you know, yeah, yeah, we're going to, we're going to clean up our act. Yes. But there does feel like there's this kind of where the rubber meets the road is like, okay, well, does that mean you're actually going to spend more money? And kind of, you know, fortify a building against some potential risk that may happen five years from now or may not. Or are you just going to save that money and give it to your shareholders? So I, I'm just wondering what your sense is of like what is happening in the market. Do companies, are companies actually following through? And the thing that immediately jumps to mind is, you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock said two years ago, you know, climate risk is financial risk. This is going to be, you know, they're the largest fund manager in the planet. So what they say carries weight, you know, so they're like, we're taking this into account when we invest in companies, who we choose to invest in, how we view them as, you know, as investments. And then two years later, just recently in his annual shareholder letter, he seemed to kind of walk a lot of that back and just being like, don't focus too much on climate because this is 
not really in line with our priorities as financial investors. I can't remember the exact wording, but it was really kind of stark in that he came out and said, along with the rest of the world, you know, this is a really big deal. But then when it gets down to putting money into kind of putting money behind those pledges, behind those ideas, that feels that's where the tension is. Listen, I think Larry and many other leaders, they're under pressure to start thinking and start using a new climate lens to judge their actions, their investments. They need new tools to get there, right? But just going back a second, I would say, I mean, we surveyed, I think it was um, uh, a couple hundred companies, but 90% of them have already experienced physical risk just in the last three or four years. So in many ways, they are living through this experience. So this is not a... This is not theory. This is these are these are insured and uninsured losses that are gathering pace every single year, right? In more geographies, in more extreme events with greater intensity. So you can look at the world through that lens and say, is this insurance or am I trying to protect my shareholders' value, my assets? Am, am I trying to protect my probability of default if you're an um, asset manager? If an insurance company, am I pricing this risk correctly for the first time? We have all these new tools. We have exponential technology. We can measure down to a centimeter level. Can I use that to try and tell you that actually it's in your best interest to protect your assets, both from a shareholder point of view and also from a continued premium coverage point of view? So you can you can always. I mean, I you know I've sat with some large CIOs recently, and half of them view this as regulation government overreach yeah um, i'm i'm talking to the other half to say actually you're on the right course you're going to have to protect your assets through this physical volatility which as karen said is locked into the system mm-hmm. you can get to net zero tomorrow morning you're still going to live through this physical risk right? yeah. so yeah. we have to think of the way we have to rethink the way we work live invest build um, map out new assets think about our growth strategies because you've got this volatility curve that's built in can't avoid it, right? You can't avoid it in South Africa. You can't avoid it in California, in Germany last year, now in the European heat waves in India. So where are you going to put your assets? Where are you going to drive your EBITDA? Where are you going to get your growth from, right? It's better to think about adaptation early, right? Because what do we do today? We wait for shocks. We wait for disasters. Exactly, That's, yeah. that's not a strategy. It is the strategy. That's my point is that it feels like that is a strategy for a lot of companies. It is. But once this data is out there, once you can measure it, and this is why we have new disclosure laws as well, because it's it's your job as a board to really think about, is this a material risk? Can I measure materiality? Can I tell that to my shareholders? If this is a risk, then I'm also legally obliged to fix that risk over time, Right. This is why we want this. We want a certain amount of open intelligence. We want ratings out there so people can make the judgments for themselves. You could be my critical supplier, right? You could be supplying 20% of my critical chips for my new iPhone 78. You don't know the risk to your factory. I don't know the risk to your factory, right? But now we can start using these tools and say, actually, it looks like you're going to have a 70% chance of flooding, excess heat. Are you making the right investments to ensure that supply chain? Because when I get to iPhone 98, I need you to supply me X amount of chips every single year, right? Let's have those conversations early. Let's plan. It's not to say that all assets are at risk. They're not. The vast majority of assets will not be at risk. The ones that are could cause a lot of economic damage, value volatility. And that's essentially what we need to measure, right? And that is a shareholder issue. When did you guys raise your first round of funding? Good heavens. Um, that was a few years ago. Uh, we let, well, I think the last round we did was in quarter one last year. That was $30 million at a Series A. And then we've done, we did a C, pre-seed, angel, I don't know what they call them these days. But <laughs> we've sort of taken in $36 million to date. Um, what has your experience been when you're kind of making this pitch to, to venture capitalists? Um, and I don't know if you're kind of going to, because it does feel like more and more of the venture capital industry is kind of, you know, awakening to the idea that climate tech broadly as an umbrella term, there's some real opportunity there. You know, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. And he's basically the first climate billionaire or the most well-known one, certainly. But I just, I'd be interested to get your sense of kind of what is happening in the world of venture capital, where the money is coming from and how they view this, especially now as we're going into this 
pretty horrendous bear market. We have seen booms and busts before in green tech. And obviously, the world has moved on quite a bit from, you know, 10 years ago, the last time this whole industry kind of bombed out. But I'd be interested to just get your sense of where things are. Well, I'll start with Karen, given that he's in the valley next to all these wonderful investors. <laughs> I will say there are um, there are more and more people joining the quote unquote climate tech party. Some of them are new new to the party, and some of them have been believers um, yeah, yeah. for uh, for a long time. The ones that are new to the party might get might get cold feet earlier um, as uh, as we get down um, into a bear market. But I would also say a lot of it has actually been focused on net zero and decarbonization and carbon. And I think a lot of times when we are talking to folks, they're actually then connecting the dots on physical risk and why that matters and why that is why that is locked in to the system. And, and this is something that we have to do. We cannot just decarbonize our way out of the problem. We have to also adapt our way out of this. And I think that is that is an emerging theme. I will say that the regulatory tailwind certainly helps. So I think the fact that there are these disclosure regulations, so SEC's proposal here, but really other parts of the globe are further ahead. Yeah, FCA, right? In the in the in the UK, they've they've already started imposing them. That's right. But also you look at Japan, um, Australia, Singapore, uh, New Zealand, multiple jurisdictions who are already looking at climate related financial disclosures. So now there is there is an inbuilt demand curve. That market, right? right. There is a there is a pressure to say what is my physical risk? What is my transition risk? And you have to disclose that. And so you can't get away from that now. There's no no place to hide. And so that market demand curve creates an opportunity, creates an opportunity for entrepreneurs, creates an opportunity for capital around it. And so uh, yeah, that's that's a tailwind, but it is it is an education process right now within climate, particularly within physical risk, I would say. Yeah. I would also say that the market will become more segmented over the next couple of years. I think... Um, I think some of these funds have raised a huge amount of capital. Um, and I think the challenge is, is that it's still a nascent sector from a revenue metrics, ARR, all the orthodox metrics that these folks would use. It just ain't there yet in climate. It's super early. So I talk to my friends in many other, you know, climate tech companies. We all, we all talk about the investors, of course. Like who's good? Who's bad? Are they are they real believers? Are they just latecomers? Are they generalists trying to pose as climate investors? Um, I think it's up to entrepreneurs to share information and talk about the segment. Like who's really who really has a climate thesis, right? Can mm. and I get inbounds probably every other day, right? Our first question to those investors is: Have you done a climate deal? Do you have a climate thesis? If you don't have a unified thesis, it's unlikely we will take your capital, right? It's like it's like a generalist trying to take a biotech deal and trying to do a like like a med deal or something, right? It's the same here. You do need some specialized skills on the investing side. You need to have a unified view of where the world's going to be. You also need to buy into some of the structural changes, right? There has been a massive societal shift married with some new exponential tech that is now facilitating what couldn't be facilitated 15, 20 years ago with the first green tech wave, right? And that all needs to be factored in. Uh, we need smart capital, of course, but it'd be interesting to see the washout in the next um, in the next couple of years. Yeah, because I feel like the washout's definitely coming. Because to your point, it does feel like, you know, a lot of those core technologies that didn't work a decade ago, like, or were just wildly expensive, like wind and solar and electrification of transport. That seems to be all kind of that's happening now. And it's kind of it's been industrialized. The kind of price has come down, but now you have this whole new wave of kind of companies on this kind of next frontier, these harder to deal with industries like cement and steel and kind of food and agriculture, kind of harder stuff that's earlier. And to your point, not much revenue right now. Yeah, but I I, I mean, I, I applaud investors who put money into carbon removal. Right, these investments, these sectors are—they're not proven, but these investments have to be made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I take my hat off to people like Lower Carbon, for instance, who have dedicated a pool of capital to this. Right. Um, but there are too many generalists acting as climate investors, and this is where. We but that's what be interesting because I think, I feel like some of these deals I've seen, some of these companies, I've seen funded. I'm like, ah, this feels like this is going to be, you know. There's always a couple big deals that go dramatically wrong, and then everybody can point to those and be like, "See, 
this is why this is all a sham or, you know, it's not ready yet or whatever. So I do worry a little bit about that again as we go into this like pretty dramatic market downturn. Agree. Let the tourists go home. Right, right. And so how do you guys move forward here? How do you kind of get people to kind of to buy in? And how much of this is about what because what you're doing, it sounds a lot like almost um almost like insurance tech. Insofar as they're like, let us show you the risk that you don't know exists here and then take actions based on it. So it doesn't sound like it's not exactly insurance, but it's kind of in the same neighborhood. Is that fair? Uh, there is an application of it there, but it's much broader than that. So, yeah. uh, And I'll give you examples even of what some of our customers are doing today, which is not just on the risk side, but really on the competitive and growth side. So everything from um, I'm looking to do an M&A, I'm looking to acquire either an asset or a portfolio. How do I factor this into business intelligence, climate intelligence into business intelligence or location planning? Where should I set up my next factory, my next hotel, my next retail store, right? Or let me look at when I'm getting, I'm onboarding a new supplier that's as part of the screen that I have so I can look at that my supply chain portfolio and uh, and what it looks like there all the way to then how do I optimize my portfolio so there is the pure sort of risk loss equation piece um, but it is broader and there they are um, many of the customers on the early end of that adoption curve are integrating this into multiple decision flows to say this is actually a level of this this climate intelligence piece we need to feed into business intelligence in multiple areas for us to truly be on the journey to what we call becoming a climate intelligent organization so it is broader than that, um, particularly because now they can start quantifying this and, and valuing this. And ultimately, you can make different decisions based on it because you could plan for the worst case scenario or you could plan for the most likely scenario. Or you could just say, hey, listen, I'm just going to plan for the best case scenario here because that is my threshold. That ultimately will come down to an individual decision, a company right, decision, right, 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 right. a threshold decision that you would need to make. We just, we, you know, Our job is to surface the intelligence for you to make an informed decision and whatever you want to apply for that in terms of apply for as as your view of how you make that decision on top of it so it is we really do view this as climate intelligence being central to business intelligence because we're seeing right. that with the early adopters and that's where we believe the market will go i think in four five six seven years time this will factor into multiple decisions right. multiple workflows um, because that's just the nature of the, the volatility as Iggy mentioned that we're living in we're realizing these losses also being pushed on it by regulators, also being pushed on it by central banks, also being pushed on it by your shareholders, also being pushed on it by your large supply chain partners. So the pressures are coming from yeah. multiple places um, yeah, here that I think this, this, is, this is where we see the market going. I think the, the sort of first 70 companies that have joined the platform, they've been pretty surprised with the findings. This is the first mm. time they're getting an x-ray at an asset level across multiple hazards, multiple emission scenarios, multiple timeframes. So they can take a step back and say, oh, I didn't realize risk was accelerating so much in these assets uh, right. versus these assets, for instance. So then they can start freaking out, but these are my really important assets because they contribute X percentage of my profits or they're really critical to another part of the chain as well. So it allows them the granularity and also it's, it is not a, about asking companies to create new budgets for um, adaptation, but it is about saying, actually, if you've got scarce dollars, where do you put those dollars this year versus next year versus in five years' time? Because we also then surface up, when do we think these risks will become material over time? Because not everything is material overnight, right? Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a, about different time steps, different hazards, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in many ways, it allows them to think about a controlled way of adaptation and a, a really controlled method sort of managing shareholders' capital and saying, we're going to safeguard these assets first and foremost because they're the most critical. Then over time, we can create allocations here. I think also the insurance companies will wake up because if they can also see um, the opportunity to write more premium, understand the risk and price that premium, they too can unlock markets. So I think there'll be markets around climate resilience insurance over time as well. So I think the responsible thing to do is to say, okay, we know these assets are risky. And actually, platforms like ours, others will see that they're risky. How do I take an adaptation? How do I inform the market that these assets are under remediation? I know there's a problem, right? Thank you, BlackRock, right? I can see the problem. Um, But I also know this is a 10-year planning cycle. It's a five-year planning cycle. So 
in many ways, companies need to be able to send the signals to capital markets. We know there's a problem. We've created budgets. This is our plan to get there, right? right. That's how they'll get higher ratings over time. And this is why ratings become so important because it is a direction of both a risk or an adaptation over time. When you talk about ratings, what exactly do you mean or what do you, how do you envision that playing out? Yeah, so I mean, essentially is uh, think of it as almost like a climate health score on your asset and it gives you a view to being able to compare that. A, B, C, D, F. Correct, right. Um, so uh, in that sense, and, and then you can decompose that to look mm-hmm. at what is driving that, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, is, yeah. It the, is it these hazards? Is it the physical risk? Over time, is it the transition risk um, of, uh, of those assets? So that can get decomposed around that. But I'll also say, I mean, the market... You know, when you see something, you can't unsee it. When you know something, you can't unknow it, right? So in some sense, the the market's expectations will evolve as as we put exponential technology in the hands of individuals. So think, you know, where it was like 15, 20 years ago, you'd go to a doctor, they'd do a checkup. Now I can wear something on my wrist or my arm that yeah. tells me my exact heart rate, my exact pulse rate. And that is now the expectation. And different people will be on different curves in terms of how deep they want to go. So again, if you put this information in the hands of people, and this comes to the whole notion of sort of democratizing the intelligence, the market expectations will evolve. Individuals' expectations will evolve in terms of what I now know, what I need to know, what I want to know um, around this uh, uh, over time. And, And this is where I think, you know, we're in the valley here. You just look at what technological innovation, but also business model innovation put together has done in terms of transforming, um, you know, just markets, segments, expectations, consumer expectations, enterprise expectations around things. And so do you think, do you think that that idea of ratings, you know, like I always think of like, it's how whenever I go to LA and you go to every restaurant, there's like a big letter in the window of for like how the cleanliness or like, you know, if it has anything other than an A, you're like, pat hard pass. I'll keep going, find the next place. <laughs> um, I don't envision that kind of coming to that, but is that the kind of idea that there would be a kind of a, a ultimately when you're talking about this push, disclosure rules, et cetera, that there will be some kind of universal grading system or rating system that everybody would agree and understand. And that becomes the kind of the base layer around which this whole kind of new way to assess climate risk, climate intelligence kind of, you know, uh, that's the center of this kind of new universe. Is that is that what you guys see happening? That's the outcome that we're striving towards. And that becomes important if you're a large listed company on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. Chances are that you're going to have a multi-jurisdictional asset footprint around the world. Yeah. You need a common methodology. You can't tell your investors one methodology in Germany, another one in Ghana, another one in Argentina. You need the unification. And this is physics. This is this is planetary physics. So we can take the measurement anywhere on the globe. We know how to measure, right? Yeah. In sort of many ways, um, it's incumbent upon boards, CEOs, to become a lot more climate literate, right? Risk officers to become a lot more climate literate um, in the next three to five years. Now, we don't we don't go and, you know, sell you long statistical tables. We make it as easy as possible for you to integrate into your business decisions. This is why we say that, business intelligence and climate intelligence should be integrated over time. If you want to know the nuances, if you're an insurance company, we can give you the statistical tables, we can give you the full distributions. But most people are not looking for that. They're looking for a direction. Like, um, But also remember that, that every asset on the planet, every city, every enterprise just has different assets, different, therefore, risk profiles, and they have different capacities to change over time, Right. How do we create a common literacy so we can understand that, so we can target intervention, we can target education? If you're the UN, you can say, well, actually, we need to think about capacity development in these countries because you're now servicing these types of risks. I just have a question about heat living in California. Um, and I have covered, <laughs> I have uh, the last few years gone up to the fire zones, typically at, right after the fire has blazed through and just raised everything to the ground and it's just you know it's horrendous but thinking about like increased heat we're in the midst of this kind of mega drought in the american west beyond wildfires which are obvious and this is i guess kind of goes to a larger question i have is that you know why is heat bad for a city for structures i guess my question is is like are there things that your model exposes that are less obvious that are huge climate risk you know when you talk about you know 
a city being 10 degrees hotter than it normally is with the, you know, all this baking concrete, what does that do to the infrastructure, to the buildings? What are the risks? Just trying to kind of draw out a little bit beyond the kind of like the floods, the fires, the hurricanes, which are obvious, the kind of that next order down of just like, if the world is just a much hotter place, the cities are going to break down in these new and interesting ways that we can't conceive of yet. Well, it's a multivariate problem, but if you just <laughs> were to extract heat, let's just say, yeah. um, if you look at the dimensions of everything from, let's just take assets. So assets will become more stressed, the structure. So in many parts of the world, these types of new um, sort of climate thresholds are already exceeding engineering design, right? Mm. Do they become more fragile faster? Do you have to decommission these assets faster? Because they haven't been... They haven't been fitted for this climate environment, right? right? Not for this level of volatility. And heat is particularly pernicious because it does affect machine productivity. Mm. Now, on the sort of human scale, it certainly affects labor productivity, right? In fact, we had days in Ghana, where like beyond like 35, mid-30s, farmers couldn't work. It was yeah. impossible to work because the outside humidity was so so intense. It was actually humanly dangerous to go to work. So depending on where you are in those cities, um, it could have a major implications on things like the construction sector, obviously the ag sector further further afield. Um, so I think when we think about the productivity, what percentage of your GDP is mm. now dependent on nature? Um, yeah. And then if heat rises, what does that do to your GDP over time? What does it do to the attractiveness of your city yeah. over time? We've been looking at patterns and sort of phenomena like the urban heat, heat islands, for instance. Like when heat gets trapped in a city, what does it do? How does it conflate with things like pollution and other particles? Yeah. What does it do to human health? In fact, we're working with a um, healthcare provider now looking at different emission scenarios for, for cities in particular. Mm. What does that mean for patient care over time? What does it mean for the demand surge on hospitals over time, for instance? Right, right, right. right. Also, you know, the other things are sort of just the compound risk on things like water, water scarcity and water security, right? So we talk about the interconnectedness between heat, drought, and wildfire, but also, you know, warmer winters and what it means for belt caps, right? Um, and therefore, you know, we are living in a in a mega drought here, but then that then affects, okay, that's both for the industrial side, for individuals, yeah. for homes, right? And there are all these knock-on effects of of those second-order risks, like Iggy mentioned, but there are things like water scarcity, and these are all interconnected. So just one thing to add, it's not just humans who suffer from the heat. It's also pathogens that start moving. It's also animals that suffer. It's all many, many different types of species. So yeah. you can expect to see disease patterns change over time as well. Because pathogens will change because they, they adapt to just the way we adapt, right? There's no difference, right? So it's a multidimensional problem, and heat is a particularly pernicious one. So yeah, you, you pick the right one first. Yeah, no, I just, I, I just, <laughs> very good friend of mine lived in Athens for many years, and I helped him move back to America, and he was moving in the middle of August. I don't know if I've ever been so hot in my life because it's also just like it's all concrete and it's all bad. So it's like the whole. It feels like you're walking through an oven all the time. It's and it's like there's a reason that like whole swathes of southern Europe just basically close down for the entire month because it's just so brutal. But yeah, if you have more and more of that kind of spreading across a wider swathe of the of the planet, to your point around productivity alone, that's it's a big thing. But also look at the aircon units. I think we're going to hit 4 billion aircon units in the next uh, 15, 20 years or so. Where's that energy mm. going to come from? What does that do to the to the problem, right? Right, right, right. What does that contribute? Because, again, more energy consumption, more carbon consumption, not energy, sorry, I should say carbon, the more circularity of the problem as well, the more intensification of these risks, right? Right, right. Cooling ourselves down is going to heat us up even more. Well, which is why you know we need to work closely with the carbon fraternity and the physical risk to take this what we call unified climate intelligence mm. all the time. You can't just take one or the other. It's not a choice. Yeah. You need to be able to look at it on a unified basis. So just finally, uh, before I let you guys go, on the, on the rating idea, as you say, we have all these regulators who are now pushing through um, climate disclosures as this completely new kind of waterfront in terms of regulation, which is obviously a good thing. Is that the scaffolding of that is like the minimal scaffolding required to then like, how do you get, how do we get to a world where there is universally agreed 
ratings that everybody's like, yeah, we're going to integrate this. And this is a thing that we all are going to use. Try getting 200 governments to agree on the IPCC. Uh, kind of this, to my point. <laughs> which, is, which is why for us, your assets matter to you. Karen's yeah. assets matter to Karen. Your B2B partners on which you have a dependency on, they matter to you. Let the market decide which assets they want to take care of and not take care of over time. And let governments figure out how do they provide a social provision for assets that provide the security for humans and cities mm. over time. So there is no common methodology. Again, I mean, I don't think there'll ever be one universally global standard. It's just too complicated. And we live in a political system. Right. In I mean, China is never going to adopt this. India may not adopt this. Brazil doesn't adopt this. But people will adopt it if it's quantified and they know it's personalized to them. Right? And that is essentially what we, this is how we view climate intelligence. You make the decisions that matter best to you to protect your asset. Right. And this goes to the point around adoption and then making that available as well for multiple parties to see it, right? So again, I think this comes from how how you drive that that adoption and really that radical transparency yeah. in the system and then let that start forming the standard uh, versus waiting for something top-down to happen. Right, right. Well, I wish you guys luck. You guys have a lot of work to do. You need to stop talking to me and get, get back to work. <laughs> Well, listen, thank you. Thank you very much for having us on your show. It's been a yeah. real pleasure. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Iggy and Karen for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends, telling your neighbors, um, you know, putting in those five stars. Always appreciate it. That is it for me this week. I'm actually not writing in the paper this week. I'm taking a couple weeks. Uh, I'm not not working i'm just working on a longer term project so i'm actually had the rare opportunity to not have to file to not have to feed the beast this week which is uh kind of amazing but anyhow there will be some new fun stuff coming for me shortly so do keep an eye out on that at the times.co.uk also i'm always on twitter uh at least i'm lurking i'm not posting all the time but i'm always lurking at danny fortson you can find me there uh, or you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous week and weekend and be safe. And hopefully you can stay cool. Bye-bye.